0: This episode brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download at audiblepodcast.com/arttrap. Over 75,000 titles to choose from for your iPod or MP3 player. This episode is also supported by the Shock podcast companion app for the iPhone, iPad, and iPod Touch, now available in the iTunes App Store. Hello, Lewis Trapani here. What follows next is our live show recorded on stage at Gallifrey One's annual premiere Doctor Who convention in Los Angeles. This year, it was Gallifrey One's Catch-22 Islands of Mystery, once again located at the Los Angeles Airport Merit Hotel. Our live show took place on Sunday, the 20th of February, 2011. If you attended in person, this is your chance to relive the show, and thank you for attending. And if you weren't there, well, here it is. Live from Gallery 1's Catch 22 Islands of Mystery, it's Doctor Who Pod Doctor Who
1: Pod Okay, well,
0: let's do it no, you now. Whatever it is, if it's valuable, send it to us. <laughs> <laughs>
2: For the best in all things Doctor Who, it's Doctor Who Podshock, the podcast all about Doctor Who, the longest running science
3: fiction television program. With Louis Trapani. Hello. Ken Deep. Hello. James Norton. Hello. News. Fabulous.
2: Reviews. (laughs) Oh no. And fan mail for James.
4: Over 40,000.
2: Doctor Who Podshock from the Gallifrey Embassy. You know that guy James was really cool. Oh yeah,
4: we blew that. I'm the Doctor, and who are
3: you?
1: The Gallifrey Embassy in its 26th year presents Doctor Who PodShock live on stage at Gallifrey One. Twenty-two. Yes, we wouldn't get. Maybe we get off for a good start, ladies and gentlemen. Would you please welcome my co-host? He's been stuck in the TARDIS, Mr. Lewis Trapani. Lewis, where's a fez now? Is cool. Here, Lewis, take one of these. OK. Well, you know, normally we do a little bit of news now, but I think everybody knows the news doctor who will be on very soon. We have a lineup of guests that are waiting for us, so should we just jump into guests? Get the ball rolling, rightly. Well, no, I'm going to uh, take my fez off. It's uh, very Alibray warm.
0: Twenty-two. Oh, no, I'm sorry. This is the Shriners Convention, isn't it?
1: <laughs> our our mate and our, and our partner in crime, Mr. James Norton, couldn't be here this weekend. He had a very good excuse. He sent a note. And should we tell them why that is? I don't know.
0: There's something about
1: marriage. Or... He wound up getting married yesterday. So. I think that's a, a pretty decent reason for missing the show. So in, in his absence, uh, there will be two-thirds of Dr. Who Podshock. You know but, what? But, but in his absence, I just want to say hello in the James voice. Okay. Our first guest has been the producer of Dr. Who for many, many years. She started in the ranks, which rocks. Came up and became the producer of Dr. Who. She's absolutely spectacular. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome on Dr. Who Podshock, Miss Tracy Simpson. Thank you so much for joining us. It
5: is my pleasure. Is this your first convention? It is, and my God, it's massive. (laughs) <laughs> Let's give it up to Tracy. My God, it's massive. But everyone is just be Honestly, I can't get over the, the hospitality, the friendliness. Everyone here is just delightful.
1: Were you nervous? Did, like, did, was that whole, like, convention thing? Like, oh, oh, oh a convention. Wow, I don't know if I could do that. Did, did you get over that quickly?
5: Uh, yeah, of course. I mean, obviously, I was really, really nervous. But everyone's just made you feel so, so at home. So thank you, guys. Thank you very, very much. And can we say thank
1: you for producing Doctor Who and being the person that... Russell T. Davies said, without you, the new series would not have existed.
5: Oh, bless him. She makes it happen.
1: Tell me why that is. Why does he say that? What is it that, that...
5: Why are you the linchpin that that whole thing was hinged on? No, I just paid Russell a hell of a lot of money to put that in his book. (laughs) Um, I don't know. I mean, that's very, very kind of her. I mean, when when we first started, it it was definitely a team effort. It was, you know, Russell, Julie, um, Phil, and myself. it It was a team effort, and it's very, very nice of Russell to say that. Many of the people
1: who who brought the series back were fans beforehand. Were you a fan?
5: Yeah, definitely a fan. But I mean, don't go asking me any specific questions. Yeah, but no, yeah, no, I, I nothing from '73. Of... Or... Yeah. <laughs> I grew up with Doctor Who, watching it as, as a kid. Yes, you, definitely you know, Hide, hiding behind the sofa when the Daleks came on, and then actually when I met a first when I first met a Dalek, obviously I wet my knickers. But <laughs> <laughs> do you remember? Do uh, uh, you have any vivid memories of the first time watching Doctor
1: Who? Sometimes uh, there, are so many, there are so many iconic images in Doctor Who. Do you have anything that
5: just stands out? You say, well, yeah, when I was three I saw this or anything like not, that. No, not really. I mean, the Daleks stand out for me. John Pertwee stands out for me. Um, but no, it was I mean, it was an icon, you know.
1: John Pertwee was the first Doctor that you saw? Yes. So you have, do you have a warm, fuzzy place in your heart for him and, and the stuff that he did? <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> You, um, you, you started in the show, uh, prior to being producer, you had a few other roles, but you were crucial in, in, in helping bring the show back with, with the team that was in place. All the other team members seem to remember getting the phone call from Russell, as an example, saying, guess what we're doing. Do you, do you have a recollection of that? Or? Yes,
5: I do. I mean, I, I was staff in BBC Wales, and Julie Gardner... Um, Called, called, called like a staff meeting for us all, and she sat us down and said, "Oh Lordy, you are not going to believe it. We're only going to try and bring Doctor Who back." And she, you know, it was really, really exciting. And were you nervous about that? Did it seem like a daunting task, being that it was like an icon, like
1: such an iconic show? I mean, it's.
5: It was a major responsibility, yes, yeah.
1: And was it like, oh,
5: no, you've got to be kidding me? Or was it really (laughs) exciting to be? It was really, really exciting. I mean, working with Julian Russell and and Phil, I mean, that's exciting in itself, but but Doctor Who. Did you have past history with any of them? I mean, is that why they they call someone like you? No, well, I was actually... Julie Gardner was working as head of drama. So I was working for Julie within the drama department in BBC Wales.
1: And just sort of progressed into into um, getting involved in the, on the production side of, of bringing the show back.
5: Yes. Exactly.
1: Weren't you a production manager at first?
5: That's right, yes. yes. Yeah. I so st-
0: for those that don't know, what would your responsibilities be as a production manager? What does a production manager do?
5: It, well, a production manager or line manager is pr- primarily in charge of the budget, uh, the crewing up of the show, um, just making sure everything's on schedule, um, on schedule, on budget, and just being that person that everyone runs to if there's any problems. And was there an ambition to become the producer? Um, or did it just kind of happen? I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, you always think, oh my God, I'm not worthy because Phil Collinson is such a genius. And when he left, I was very, very flattered that Russell and Julie asked me, asked me to produce. And nervous? No? Yeah? Yeah, I'm not going to say wetting my knickers again, but yeah, I was very
1: nervous. (laughs) That was twice on one show that we've done that. Well, a couple other guests that are with us you've worked with before. I mean, we're going to have Paul Casey and Kosh Jumbo come out.
5: Give me a little background on what we can expect from them. Uh, Kosh is beautiful (laughs) and a talented actress. Paul Casey equally as beautiful and... So should we have Paul come out now? Yeah,
1: come on. All right, ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome the man behind the mask, Mr. Paul Casey, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, We have multiple microphones to work with. This is fantastic. The man
0: behind the mask. He's wearing a mask right now. You just don't know
1: it. Can, can you show what, what Paul looks like? Under yeah, your mask? sure. <laughs> uh, is it safe to assume you're not allergic to latex?
3: No, I'm not allergic to latex. <laughs> no, not at all.
1: Is it a difficult thing to be under so much either makeup or plastic or styrofoam or latex? Is it something you have to be physically fit for?
3: Yeah, I mean, I would definitely say, you know, coming from a physical background, that, you know, it does really help, um, you, know, to, you know, with the creatures and the monsters and everything and bringing them to life. Um, but I'm quite used to being inside, so it's quite secondary for me. I feel at home. You know, inside, so...
1: You think it's easier because you're under a mask to just kind of be able to do something if the director says, I need you to jump or leap or twist, that it's a piece of cake because no one's seeing me. I'm underneath here.
3: It is so much fun being on the inside, yes. Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> You've seen all the costumes around this weekend, yes. what the fans made.
3: Absolutely brilliant. Really? I have to say, I mean, some of the costumes are amazing here this weekend.
1: I was just going to ask, you're the man inside the mask. No one's more intimate with you, with it. What
4: is it? <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is just like last night. Uh, <laughs> no one's more familiar with the with the costumes and the mask. So how does it rate? When I mean, we see the, the level of talent being displayed here last night, are you amazed? Are you... Is there anything you're looking at going, wow, that's just like what I wore?
3: Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, as I've been walking around sort of Friday and Saturday, I was sort of asking them, you know, I was saying, you know, what's it like? And, you know, and now you get a taster of what my job's like. And they're like, yeah, yeah. And so it's really nice to sort of chat to people because they've obviously got the insight of what it's like being on the inside because they are. And do you ever get asked for advice on it? Um, Sometimes people, you know, I generally get asked, you know, how can people get into playing creatures and monsters and things like that. So, yeah. And how do you get into
1: playing I mean, where do you go? How do you say to people, I'm the man you want inside of a giant monster?
3: Um, I don't actually go around saying that. People go around going... Let's get Paul to do it.
1: <laughs> so it's one of those things, like once you've got your first one under your belt, everybody goes, okay, this guy's great, he doesn't pass
3: out. He- yeah, it's sort of like, the. for me, the, the ball just rolled, really. And obviously, you know, once Doctor Who came back and I was asked to audition to play the Creatures and Monsters on the first series, I mean, I have to say, I never thought I'd be keep getting asked back all the time, which I'm, I feel very privileged, you know, to be a part of it. But, but um, yeah, I mean, once you get into it and... You sort of get a name for yourself and then you get known and then you start to get asked to do other things too. And
1: and producers get to know that
5: you're reliable and you're ready to go. Yeah. Doctor Who could not happen without Paul Casey. He is just a complete and utter star. (laughs) Will that be in your book? I said, will that be in your book? If he pays me the money, yes.
0: (laughs) Do you feel that because you were so comfortable with the makeup and under the mask that that's the reason, well, part of the reason why they kept on calling upon you? Do you feel like maybe other operators or actors may not have that resist or may not have that um, quality
3: that you have? Yeah, I mean, it's not always suited to everybody. I mean, you know, some people are claustrophobic yeah. or, you know, so it's not suited to those kind of people. But I love it and I don't suffer from it, so... <laughs> And you don't complain. <laughs> you meet all the But the thing is, I mean, you know, the whole complaining thing, I never have anything to complain about. Yeah. I mean, I have to say I'm so well looked after. And everyone who plays the creatures on Doctor Who, you know, are so, are so well looked after by the team from Millennium. You know, every, every little detail is taken care of, really, to make our day as easy as possible, really. So...
1: I knew this would happen. I would go into a blank because I wanted to ask you about, with with uh, actors under masks, is there a concern? Like, is the first concern safety and their comfort? Because there was a time probably where people just said, "Okay, put the rubber hat on and go out there and do your thing, and we'll worry about what happens." But how much concern is there about what Paul is going through over the course of the day? His his comfort, his ability to be able to have lunch, or run to the loo or whatever they have to do.
5: I mean, be, as, as Paul mentioned, Millennium FX are just, they, they, they're superstars and they've, they've made sure that what they're going to put Paul in is completely, you know, practical, if you like, comfortable. And my visions of Paul Casey is at lunchtime with Paul with a straw, straw through his mouth trying to, trying to eat processed food or what have you. Because Paul is... I mean, you, you were saying, you know, do, do, do people ask for Paul? The directors know that when you've got someone like Paul Casey, because our schedules are so, so tight, you can't have someone who doesn't know what they're doing, who's not walking properly or... Needs to or take have a it, break. Yes, and yeah, an, yeah, but, yeah. But no, you, you obviously rely on Paul to say, you know, Tracy, I think I'm... You know, I've I've got to get out of this. This is killing me. But because the costumes are made so brilliantly, or what have you, by Millennium Effects, all that's taken into account before Paul sets on sets sets foot on set.
1: Yeah, you know, John Levine was up here a few minutes ago. He he began as a yeti on the show and and went on to become a major character in. in Yeah, yeah.
3: I've been talking to him over the weekend, and it's very inspiring to meet people who. Who have played creatures and monsters? Who started as a monster yeah, and they worked yeah.
1: their way? Perhaps is that something that, that you might see in your future? You think you? Um,
3: I'm always open to everything, but I mean, hand on heart, I love playing creatures and I love being behind the mask, and that is my first place of port of call that you know I would say yes to. I think you know I would probably say, if I had the choice of two roles, and one was as myself and one was as a creature, I think I would probably choose the creature because I do really enjoy it.
1: Do you have a favourite?
3: Do I have a favourite? I could probably go through every creature I've ever played as a favourite for different reasons, but I think... A very special time was for the Cybermen. You know, we had four episodes. There was ten of us. Um, The rehearsal period and everything that we had with it and with Ailsa Burke as well, the movement coordinator on it. Um, So we had ten weeks of filming the Cybermen, and that was a very, very special time. So um, if I was to say a favourite, I would probably say Cybermen, I think. How much does imagination play into what you do? Imagination... In what way do you mean?
1: You, you know, you're going to put on a costume and you have to be this creature from someplace else or some other time or whatever, and is it simply the movements that you're looking to do that hit your marks, or do you ever say, well, this, this creature would do this or... or, or, yeah, I mean, or
3: all... <clears throat> yeah, I mean, all the time things will come up in... Uh, you know, you have your basic character, but then as the scripts go on, they, you know, they tend to do new things. Like, for example, the Weevil in Torchwood, you have your basic character creature, but then a script will come, and then he's being asked to do something else. So, in my mind, I'm constantly thinking, how would he do that, or how can I make that from that character sort to of thing? To make it
1: real or believable?
3: Absolutely, yeah, as real as possible in in that character. Yeah.
1: Well, you mentioned you were on Torchwood. And one of our next guests was also on Torchwood. Did you work with her? Did you have a chance to work with
3: Kush? No, no, actually, I didn't. But we never crossed paths at all.
1: So during that shoot, it was just something that you worked on one day she worked another day? Yeah. Well, you want to bring her out on stage? Let's do this right now. From Torchwood Children of Earth, she played Lois Abiba. Ladies and gentlemen, would you welcome to the stage Kush Jambo? <laughs>
0: Everybody say cheese.
1: Cheese. Hello, how are you? Come, let's slide let's down on the couch here. We have microphones for everybody.
6: Yeah, I just, I had to, I had to take a picture because, you know... It may never happen again. Ah, uh, that's so, not true. Uh, and I don't want my grandkids saying, like, Grandma's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> she she thinks she was in Torchwood kind of thing. So. <laughs>
1: this must have been a fantastic experience. I mean, to, to go and be cast on a show that was so highly anticipated. I mean, Torchwood was talked about for months and months, perhaps, perhaps even a year beforehand. There was a lot of anticipation. Mm -hmm. The the fans really embraced the show. Mm -hmm. Is that something that when you got cast, was that a little nerve wracking or you were just like, yeah, I'm
2: going for this. I
6: mean, well, yeah, I do, I do try to jump in head first with most things, but actually for in lots of ways, it was a, a really, um, intimidating to start with experience because as well as you know the other two series that have gone before um You know, a lot of people enjoyed those too. This was going to be very different. The actual, just initially being even asked to audition for that show. um, At the time, I'd only kind of left drama school a couple of years before. I'd had a few, you know, a few jobs, but I was kind of paying my dues and doing this part and that part and this part. So to be asked to have a featured role in that series, and as soon as I saw the scenes that I was auditioning with, I realised that it was going to be something quite special. So as soon as I read them, I was I was desperate, desperate to get the part, and so to get it was uh,
1: was good. You knew right off the bat it was for Torchwood. There was no secrets.
0: Right? No, there was, there was no
6: secrets. Wrong. I knew it was for Torchwood, but I also knew that it was going to be different from do something two. different.
0: Did you yeah. know that the Torchwood series is going to be something that was worldwide audience? And no. So that's uh, something that you weren't expecting. You, did, no. you didn't Google it when you got home or something. And go, <laughs> well, let's watch this Torchwood well, thing. No, because I
6: knew it. I knew of it, and a lot of people had watched it, but. Um, but I, I didn't know what would come afterwards. I didn't know what would happen.
0: And here you are in Los Angeles. Yes. California, <laughs> A couple of years later. Miles and miles
1: away. <laughs> Did you know you'd be working with Peter Capaldi at the time?
6: No, I didn't.
1: Did it make you nervous when you found out? Yes,
6: I I nearly wet my pants. Definitely.
1: <laughs> That's the third um, wet pants reference so far. Today.
6: I I've got to be honest. He's Peter. He's Peter Capaldi. You almost want to put in a. You can't swear on this, can we? But you you do almost want to put in a Peter M. F. Capaldi <laughs> because because he is. You know, like he. Well, he is. That's he right. is. And um, you know, there was me on set with all these amazing people. And you're trying to stay calm and you're trying to not be an idiot and you're trying to say something interesting when you're on the train sitting next to Peter M. F. Capaldi and he's like, he's like you know, I can't get this cryptic crossword right. And you're like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do, you want, do you want some of my muffin? <laughs> Like, what do you do? What do you do with yourself? You've got to, like, try to be cool. trying to be cool. Yeah, I had to do a lot of trying to be cool.
1: Did he make you comfortable, though, once you started working? Is it something that, you know, it's sort of like that nervous energy stops and then you start
6: working? I think whenever you go on to something, especially something that's already established, even though Peter was coming into it as a new character as well, when you work with older actors and more um, very, very, very well-established people who are known worldwide for what they do... And in, and in your industry for what they do, it's always, you're always wondering how open are they going to be to you, not only because you're, you're new, but also because you're, you're young. I know that sounds really stupid, but I would co- have completely understood if he'd, if he'd walked past and I'd gone, hi, Peter, and he'd gone... <laughs> I would I, have I, I, I just got it, you know? But he was so warm and open, and I think those are the two words that I would use for everybody on that crew... That, you know the, the people on on the crew that I work with had a, have had a massive impact on how i've how i 've worked in TV since then and what I expect from the people that I work with and what i 'm expected to give back to them you know it was a very it was a real really, really special group of people yeah
1: she felt comfortable fairly early on, which yeah. i'm sure is important, but at the same time you were playing adversaries and you were supposed to be uncomfortable in there. Yes. so did th- th- that kind of <laughs>
6: Yeah wet pants all the time it was it was, uh, it, was it was real <laughs> it was i was i was working with the method on that one yeah it did it did you're right it did help in that way i was running in there i was late for my first day at work i'd come from the temping agency and i was that day i was terrified of working with them but yeah they both made me
1: feel that really comfortable that was the you and not the uh... that
6: that was it was a combination of the two yeah. but at the same time you have to find a way to get that nervousness you know you've got to get control of the nervousness because it's good to be nervous it's a good energy to have mm-hmm. but at the same time you got, got, right yeah, got to you've got to find a way to control it yeah you've got you got to find a way to control it because um it can it can get out of control
1: what surprised you most about working on children of earth was there something that really just you, you kind of knew about torture going in You mm-hmm. knew the people you were working with but was there something that you were just like man i never expected that
6: um I'll be really honest. I think that it was the first... um, I'd, I'd done a couple of series of other stuff before, but it was the first TV job that I'd ever worked on where I... Felt like I had a real emotional connection to what I was doing. Not that I'm not emotionally connected to the other things that I've done, but the the arenas of imagination that I'd been in previously had been a lot closer to real life and a lot closer to, oh, I'm you know I'm I'm off to do this, I'm off to do that, but and I'd enjoyed them and I and I'd been proud of them, but I'd only ever really felt that buzz and that connection from theatre work previously. Mm -hmm. Torture was the first job I ever did for TV where I thought, oh my God, TV can be amazing. You know, like TV can make me wake up in the morning and and be terrified or can make me cry or can bring up feelings about something. And and that's a lot to do with Eros. That's a lot to do with an amazing director Mm -hmm. because in TV, the director to me, I think is, is super important. And they can be somebody that completely ignores you and doesn't torture you at all and expects you just to get on with it. Or they can be somebody that's able to tweeze things out of you by suggesting something or inferring something. And I, I lay a lot at, you know, at his door for for that show because I, he really helped me, really, really helped me. So it was the first time I really thought, I do, do I really like TV. Like, I, really, I really like this. And that's down to the writing and the people and the, the show, yeah.
1: You're someone who, with your age group, must have grown up seeing things like Star Trek or The X Files on Mm -hmm. TV. Yeah. So it's it wasn't something that you were unfamiliar with. Maybe knowing science fiction is is that fair to say?
6: Yeah. No, it wasn't. It wasn't unfamiliar. Yeah. We uh, we grew up Star Trek, Deep Space, Deep Space Nine. Yeah. And yeah. We grew up with, that was our, they used to show that like Sunday afternoons, that was what we watched. X-Files, weren't really allowed to watch that so much until we were a little bit older, because that was a bit scary, a bit scary and a bit sexy. But actually, I'm not being funny, Star Trek, they got some sexy outfits in that. When I think about it now, my brothers, a lot of Lycra in that show, when I think about it now, so, but yeah, I was, Yeah
1: did did you having brothers and things did it help you get the fact that you were going to go into a show that is serious and dramatic like Children of Earth is so well written Mm -hmm. but yet is about a a monster you know just basically one of the the, you know an actor in a mask and, and pretending to you know do whatever yeah did it help you get that? Did, well, you help, did it help you wrap your mind around the fact th- that this was...
6: I don't know. I think you just, you've just got to think... I mean, Tracy looks like a grown-up, but she's got to have the mind of a kid as well. I think it's really important you know, in her job, and in, especially in Paul's job, but to you've got to get, have those creative juices flowing, flowing. You have to kind of, in a way, think like a kid. You have to want to play, and you have to believe. Like, these guys all believe. You know, you have to believe, and I think that... I mean I'm from a family of six children I'm number 2 so we we played a lot we made a lot of stuff up and I have a I have a crazy imagination and if some if something's well written enough I'll believe it you know mm. so I think yeah.
0: And what was your experience working on the show? I, I hear John Berriman's a bit of a prankster, and it's <laughs> a lot of fun. So, uh, any interesting comments or stories of um, experiences? Well, obviously,
6: I was coming into the. I mean, they. You know, they were a solidified group. They'd worked together for a long time, and I didn't actually work with john so much it was more with eve and kai because Mm -hmm. um you know most of my scenes were with them though i was locked up in a prison with john so i did get to see him a little bit through a very small hole um (laughs) (laughs) how you doing john yeah i'm good i'm good get me a coffee Uh, um but uh yeah no he they were all lovely very welcoming very nice people always ask me that's always the first thing they ask me is what's john like and they really, really want you to say something bad, you know? <laughs> they really, really want you to say, oh, he's... And I'm always so um, gleeful to be able to tell them that he's exactly as, as he is. Mm-hmm. It's not put on. It's real. He's, the, he's got his feet on the ground. He's very down to earth and he's very welcoming to people. And, yeah, he's a laugh.
3: And he is a little bit of a prankster.
6: <laughs> and he likes to show his bum a lot. Oh, oh, do you, oh Paul, do you have something to Let's add Let's get to, to the that? point here. Well, he likes he, to show his bum a lot.
3: All I would say is uh, there were times when I was uh, doing a Weevil in the Vault and I'm sort of smashing against the, the glass and stuff, that what was going on off-camera <laughs> to my right... Um, <laughs> catches your eye a little bit sometimes was
1: it a bit naughty
3: <laughs> was it a bit naughty
6: um, you could
0: say that ah, okay. that's our John barman
6: yeah there was a, um there's a there's scene where he um, you know he gets stuck in the in the clay and they drop him off a quarry and the you know it all smashes and he 's naked and blah 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 it's, it's not that long that he had to be smashed off and naked for well he was naked afterwards, but the day that I came in to film a different scene, they just um, finished kind of um, Messing it you know, getting him naked, and they had to muddy him all up to come out of the quarry and all they needed to do was get him naked and muddy him up and When I came in that day, sometimes when you had makeup done, they'd take a, a funny picture, maybe of you smiling, and they'd just yeah. stick it on the wall mm-hmm. and there was like fifty two pictures <laughs> like a collage of John like with a loincloth on, covered in mud, and it was like. <laughs> Was like they were like, come on, let's take one for a laugh, and he'd gone, wait, wait. <laughs> <laughs> and there was like, a ma- and I was like, okay, so so how long's the quarry scene? And, she, and they were like, yeah, when we had been fun with that. Yeah, he's not shy. <laughs> he's proud. He's got a lot. To, he's got a lot to be proud of. <laughs>
1: I have one final question for our lovely guests. Uh, we met, We talked about imagination now with both of you. So, but Tracy, cush, t- t- tossed it over to you a little bit. Do you have to have an imagination as a producer?
5: Oh good Lordy, of course you do. Yes, yeah.
1: Well, no, but how much of it plays into what you do? How how much? You know, you many times producers are, are working out numbers and things like that. But where do you imagine? Where do you
5: go with that? How do you? Where do you start? With imagining something. Well, I mean, you, you said about budget restrictions. It's it's trying to. You've you really got to have two heads: this sort of economical one and, and imagine, an imaginative head. Um, and it's just making sure that your director gets the visions he wants with, with, within the, the with budget he, constraints. With the tools he has yes. To work yeah. On. Yeah. Is it challenging? Is it? Yeah, is it yeah. I mean, you know,
1: beyond. Um, I think everybody kind of understands. Like, oh, is it, oh, the writer would write something really grand, mm-hmm. but. Where's that line? Where, you know, you,
5: I'm not expressing it exactly no, the no, way No, no, don't be silly. There, there is no line. You've got to go over and beyond that, that, that line. No matter what it takes, yeah. but within the confines. Exactly.
1: It's fantastic. I want to thank all three of you for being here. Ladies and gentlemen, the man behind the mask, Mr. Paul Casey, our producer, Tracy Simpson, and Loris Aviva, Miss Cress Jumbo, ladies and gentlemen. Thank, thank you, so you very much. much. Shall we take a look at something real quick and we'll be right back in 60 seconds.
0: And we'll be right back with our live show recorded on stage at Gallifrey one this year in Los Angeles. And we wouldn't be able to be there and bring you this show from across the country in California, as far as Ken and myself are concerned without the help of supporting subscribers Without sponsorship for our live show, it is Pachuk supporting subscribers that help make it all happen. As thrilling and exciting as it is doing our show annually there, it does not go without some expense. You can help. You can help by becoming a Pachuk supporting subscriber if you're not one already. Not only will you be supporting the show, but you'll get extra content as well, such as Doctor Who Pachuk Extra Edition episodes and other advantages that we offer supporting subscribers. To learn how to become a supporting subscriber, simply go to net or arttrap.com and click on the top banner on the page in regards to becoming a supporter. As always, a huge big thank you to all our supporters. We can't do this show without you. We can't continually bring this show without you. Please, if you haven't done so yet, please consider supporting Dr. Who Podshock by becoming a supporting subscriber. And now let's return to our live show recorded on stage at Gallifrey One in Los Angeles.
4: Through
7: 1981. Doctor, I'm not one of the most stimulating places in the universe, but nevertheless, we're requested to be. Doctor! Hi, I'm Fraser Hines, and thank you for watching Podsex. What? Pod, pod, oh, podsock?
2: Podsock? Podshop? 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 I think Podsex is better. Lisa, yes, have you touched the dimensional stabilizers? Of course not. All systems functioning normally. I could be the relative drip commentator.
4: Seems to have done the trick
2: Where are we?
4: Somewhere above Hyde Park, the view should be spectacular
7: Hi, I'm Bridget Marquardt, thank you for listening to Doctor Who Podshot.
6: The authorities will go mad
7: I'm Simon Garrier, and Doctor Who Podshock
2: I wrote a bunch of... I can't even find the words to explain how much money they owe me
7: Yes, uh, a small error has been made small error. It's probably due to nothing more than a temperamental solenoid on the lateral
4: balance cones.
7: Hi, I'm Brian Croucher. You may remember me playing Borg in Robots of Death, Doctor Who, and also Space Commander Travis in Blake 7, BBC. And I thank you all for listening to this Doctor Who Pudshock. Well, um... Uh, yeah, yeah, thank, thank you, Phil. If you can organise that, well, I'll come in and I'll definitely meet these people. Oh, hello. <laughs> I am just um, on the phone to my a- a- agent. Um, he's, he's a bit bananas, uh, you know, and, you know, anyway. But um, iPod, Podshot, or uh, whatever you are, um, I'll have a shot at it and, and say, have a great time and listen and watch and, you know, just live. Feels different this time. Happy no. 25th anniversary to the California
3: Embassy. Can it really be 25 years? You, you must have been children when you started.
8: All my love, the 8th Doctor, Paul McGann. How about
2: that? How about,
8: that?
1: How about that? Here we go. There we go. How about that? Mr. Paul McGann, they're finishing that up. We have the second part of that coming up. I want to take a quick moment to thank Joshua Lou Friedman, who helped put together the videos um, uh, going on his trip, starring in the movie Bulla over in the U.K., which they just finished shooting last summer and will be out probably later this year or early next year he went over and he had a wonderful time with all these great people and compiled a, a wonderful video to help us bridge these little things and he's been instrumental in helping us today so I want to say give that. it up to so, Joshua yeah. okay so let's bring on our next guest let's keep the ball rolling ladies and gentlemen this man is an acting legend he's been in everything and we are delighted and pleased to have him here he's the prime minister himself for God's sakes. Ladies and gentlemen, would you please welcome to the stage Mr. Ian McNeese. I... Uh, let's get you let 's get you a microphone. oh, this is deja vu all over again. We were just here last night, weren 't we?
4: We were indeed, I wonder why
1: and you were a bit naughty, weren't you?
4: Well, I had a little bit of fun. was there anybody here who last night yeah so you know what my packet was about, yes, yeah? so my <laughs> Was it the packet? Unit. No. The unit. <laughs> it was the unit. I don't know why I <laughs> called it a packet all of a sudden. <laughs> I'm very tired, I have to say.
1: Well, this is a family show. so it is. Gonna, we keep it back. We're quick? not going to be talking about anybody's unit
4: in this show. No problem.
1: And, uh, but you will be having to contend with two Americans, though. We had a little U.K.-U.S. rivalry last night, which was a lot of fun. I have to tell you, I know this is your second U.S. convention. The first one in Chicago is amazing. This one's amazing. Uh, what, are you digging, doing conventions? You...
4: Oh, for goodness sake. I, I'm a sort of, uh, 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 I'm a convention junkie now, I think.
1: It's addicting, isn't it?
4: I'm not going to be able to go through my years any longer without having to have at least four or five conventions, probably. Um, Oh, so you're a
1: regular now, huh?
4: No, I have to say, because, I mean, apart from anything else, I mean, the people at the conventions are so warm and so friendly and so knowledgeable, that's the other thing. And they've seen me in so many things. No, I'm very excited. Because you've been in so many things. Well, there you go.
1: Well, actually, I wanted to ask you about that. One of the most popular questions we got, we got in Chicago was about playing Baron Harkonnen. Oh, yes. Do that's
4: right. No, 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 no. That's, uh, that's exactly one of my favorite things.
1: In Chicago, there was someone that asked you a fantastic question, and then I'm, I'm afraid I don't know who it was because it was from the audience, so I'm going to plagiarize just a little bit. But they asked okay. you th- that there was some, something about the two miniseries that were very theatrical, almost yes. by design, and you kind of you kind of talked about that a little bit, and I found that fascinating. Well,
4: that was, it was, it was to do with uh, John Harrison who was the director of uh, of, Bo- uh, uh, he was the writer-director, he wrote um, the first Dune, and the second one he uh, uh, wrote and directed the first Dune, and was responsible for casting me as the Baron, and I think one of the reasons that I was lucky enough to play the Baron was that, as a writer, he'd, uh, uh, he'd he'd had a feeling that he was going to make it slightly Shakespearean. Um, it, so much so that some of the lines that the Baron had were in rhyming couplets. So I think he wanted he wanted quite a theatrical performance, and by God, he got one, because it wasn't... Um, uh, no, no, no. It wasn't exactly naturalistic. What I, and what I was wearing was a little kinky, too, I believe. <laughs> I still have it, you know, in my wardrobe at home, so it's, uh, you know...
1: Does it come out on special occasions? It comes out on
4: Halloween. It's the only time I can get it out. (laughs) It's that scary, I'm afraid, yeah. And
1: you had that red
0: hair as well.
4: Oh, that red hair, yes. That red hair was, was, (laughs) it kept that a secret until I arrived in Prague where we shot it and said to me, yes, you're going to have red hair and this is the uh, place that's going to do it for you in Prague. And uh, I went that afternoon and came back red and stayed red for quite a long time.
1: You have an interesting story, though, on how you were cast for that. And I found that fascinating about how yeah, uh, you really was, lobbied for the gig, didn't you?
4: I really wanted to do I mean, I'd seen the, I'd seen the feature film, um, as lots of people have, and was a huge fan of the feature film because I loved David Lynch and I loved the macabre, I, I, loved, the, uh, I loved the dark side, and, and I loved, specifically, I loved the performance uh, um, of the actor that gave, um, you're Ken. going to tell me the name, aren't you, Ken McMillan? Uh, who I thought gave an extraordinary performance as a baron. So I was really key. I knew what it was, and I knew I wanted to play it. Um, and I knew the guy had to be heavy, so I was 50% there anyway. <laughs> so, uh, but I had to lobby for it. And, and so I was in England, uh, uh, and he was seeing people in America, so I thought, I'm going to have to put this on tape. And at the moment, I was playing, at the time, I was playing um, in a version of... Uh, David Copperfield with Maggie Smith and Bob Hoskins, and I was playing Mr. Dick at the time, and I had to have a a, a bald, um, what they call it was a bald wig, which is a a plastic thing that goes over your head, makes you bald, and then they applied um, very thin streaks of hair that used to be combed over, so I had this bald wig on. Uh, and so, when I had the screen test, I got the, I got the uh, the DP, the photographer of the show, to film m- my um, speeches that I did to camera, straight to camera uh, uh, of the Baron. And this was sent over to America. And just at the end, when I was wearing this bald wig, I just started to rip the wig off, and underneath was this extraordinary hair that came forward. And, and it was quite, it was quite a shocking. <sighs> horror moment. And the director apparently saw the video, and when he saw it, he said, well, he's bald, okay, I think I can live with that. But when he saw this, he went, oh my God, this is really freaky. <laughs> and I think it was very instrumental in me getting the job, which was great.
1: That's the, the kind of thing that shows maybe a little bit of the imagination required to, to yeah. pull off a character like that, to really yeah, make yeah. it come to life. Yes, that, exactly. Because he's so extraordinary. That character is, he, you know, where do you start with someone like Who's just as crazy as the Baron is? And,
4: and so I don't know because I mean I think evil. it was very lucky that he gave me he gave me a um, uh, he gave me a pretty free rein and and I took it. I mean I ran I ran into the wilderness with this uh, quite happily and I think that um, as far as I could see, I mean I based it on the fact that he was a complete another hedonist and a lover of everything, every sex every piece of food, every drink he could get his hands on, he was a glutton of everything, and I think and the obesity was the uh, key thing in there too, that God did they pad me up, you know, I didn't need the padding but I had more and more and more, so it was a a big deal, they had um, uh, let me just tell you a little bit about the flying sequence that happened with it, for those of you who may not, I've been talking a little bit about it before, so bear with me if you have heard this before, but I um, was very keen because in the movie, the band flies, so I was very keen to know how that would happen when we were going to do it in Prague. And so I kept emailing the director saying, how are you going to fly me? Because I'd heard that that, uh, that flying with a harness, especially for big guys, is not that comfortable, which is a harness and then they have wires, and, and so they lift you up, but then uh, the harness can bite very hard on areas that you don't want it to bite on, quite frankly. So anyway, so uh, um, I never got a word back. So I arrived in Prague a week before we filmed, and um, eventually I got told I was going to go to the studio, and they were going to show me how I was going to fly. Very excited. So I got there, and I walked into this big hangar, and I saw this crane. And it was like a seesaw crane that sort of went... Um, up like that so there's a person behind it and it would lift up like that on weights and you so it go quite high up and at the end of it they had a bicycle seat and I thought hello 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 and so they said walk this way I went over to the bicycle seat and I sat on it. it was quite comfortable and then they lifted me up and I went higher and higher and higher so the idea was to be on this crane which they had wheels on and they could wheel me around and I could go high in the air with this crane and so that was fine. I went home happy until the next day when I came back in again. And I couldn't see the bicycle seat any longer. And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, let me tell you. The, the thing is, uh, um, it was great. It looked good. But you look like you were sitting. And we obviously want to make you look like you're standing. So we're going to replace the bicycle seat. And it's going to have a, a, a sport bicycle seat on it. A racing bicycle seat. And for you, though, that don't know what that means, it means just a little tiny bar where you sit on. You can imagine what that's like when your whole weight is on it. It was a nightmare, absolute nightmare. So I screamed quite heavily when I went up on it. And they, they took me down again, and they managed to put some stirrups that went all the way down the back of my legs so I could eventually stand and sit at the same time. So it was... It was it was okay, and then at the end of the shoot that lasted about six or seven weeks, this Czechoslovakian man who'd been shifting this grip, had been moving around like this, I wheeled in a small version of the crane, but on it were 27 boxes of the local Czech beer. And I said, "You know, thank you so much. You've been my legs, my arms, my everything, and moving around for six weeks." This is my thank you.
1: Fantastic.)
0: You did an outstanding job in that part, by the way. I loved you in that. I think you you. did an outstanding job. In fact, when I saw you as Churchill in Doctor Who, I didn't immediately connect the dots that it was you. And I think that's testimony of your acting skills that you... I mean, there's some actors that you can always watch, and it's, let's say, it's Harrison Ford. He may be a great actor, but you always know it's Harrison Ford playing this part... You know Harrison Ford as so and so but with you it's Churchill or with you it's Baron, um,
1: mm. Baron You so, sell it so yeah. well the, oh, Churchill well, um, was sold so well Seriously, you. When you, 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 you. you bring it to life now, He's a historic figure so it's got to be challenging to have someone who was in real life there's people who knew him, people who met him
4: Yeah, I mean the, the, there, was a, the, there was a tricky time when uh, um, um, I'm going to repeat myself for you, the, 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 those of you already heard this I apologize for those that I've already heard this, I'm sorry. But uh, let me tell you, for those who haven't heard it, um, I'd already played Churchill before. At the National Theatre in London, they'd had a production called Never So Good about the life and times of Harold Macmillan, who was one of our great prime ministers. And Jeremy Irons played Harold Macmillan. And they asked me to play Winston Churchill. So I got to play him before. And so i had done the research, uh, but... There's nothing more terrifying than when you, you know, have a first night and everybody's there, including members of the Churchill family. And that's, 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 that's pretty scary, I have to say, who I met afterwards and were very charming. But it was like going out there, you know, going out with people that actually were his family members was very scary, I have to say.
1: Did you get a vote of confidence from them? Do
4: you know, I'd like to say yes, but um, maybe, 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 maybe along the way, yeah.
1: Churchill was a fantastic character. You're actually Mr. February in the Doctor Who calendar this I time.
4: love that. You're a center <laughs> for I love that. I love that. You know, if it had been Mr. February with Dune, I'd have had all my clothes off too, you know that. <laughs> that would have been really scary stuff, I tell you.
1: Do you think Churchill would ever return to Doctor Who? You think because Oh
4: my God, let's pray, let's hope, let's pray, partner, let's hope. He? I have to say no, 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 because in fact, God bless him, Matt Matt as I left the set on the very final day, and we'd gone on so well, and we'd had such a blast together, he sort of winked at me and said, "To the next time, and I went, you betcha, Matt, I'm coming back.
1: That is absolutely fantastic. I loved the part of Winston Churchill. I love having a, a, a figure from history be so in touch with the doctor. I think that's fantastic. Like, on a personal I think, basis... I think, I
4: think what, what was really, really... I, I have to thank Mark Gattis for this because he'd already set us up that we were already friends. We'd already worked together before. We'd already done things together before. And we were meeting again. And that wonderful line about... You know, there's something about you, Doctor, I don't quite remember, that face or something, so, you know, which is great. So, I mean, I think that, um, I I think because he opened the door for a return by saying that, uh, I have to thank Mark for that.
1: What do you think? Do you think we could
4: see Churchill again? great. Thank you.
1: Last night we were up here with some beautiful ladies. We have another beautiful lady joining us on stage right now. A, a surprise.
4: Oh, wow. Know.
1: It's a surprise, but you know who it is.
4: I have an inkling, yes. And, and
1: you, uh, you can attest to her, uh, her status as a legendary actress. I and can
4: indeed. I can indeed. Ladies I, and
1: gentlemen, the first of our surprise guests is going to join us. She is absolutely wonderful. You know her from Robots of Death as Toose. She was also Miss Money Penny in Never Say Never Again. She was in Blake Seven Tripods. Dr. Who, again, later with, with Sylvester McCoy. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage Miss Pamela Salem. <laughs> Be still our heart. Do you know Ian?
4: Hello, hello, hello. This is
1: our awesome. first time meeting. We didn't even have time today to say hello backstage. No, My name is Kenny. This is Lewis. Thank you. Nice to Hello
9: here, Lewis. Thank you so much for joining us, please. It's a pleasure.
1: This is not your first convention, is it?
9: Not my first one, but I haven't done many uh, <laughs> so any for Doctor Who. One, yes, here actually. And Thank you. And uh, any for James Bond? Have you ever done it? Yes, in uh, Birmingham and across in the valley, the other country. Oh, of course, (laughs) of course.
1: You've, uh, you've played in uh, you've been in a, in a number of series and in movies, both motion picture and television you've done all kinds of different things but a lot of science fiction we've been talking a lot about imagination today uh, it, how much imagination do you bring when you, when you go to work on a science fiction part how different is it from let's say playing the prime minister in the west wing
9: <laughs> well actually I've also played the prime minister I played Maggie Thatcher here in west wing <laughs> but very different um I think if you act, you have to have imagination anyway, as everybody here knows, and I'm sure everyone has it, but uh, you do, it's such fun doing science fiction because you can, you know, you do all those things you never get a chance to do normally. I mean, I, certainly I would give anything to go and visit the moon, but at least I, you know, piloted the the UFO that we went on. <laughs> and uh, uh, there's, there's various, um, I mean, once I did... Lake Seven, so I was a high priestess on another moon, you know, so it's lovely, it's a, it's a flight of fancy it, it. I enjoy it anyway. <laughs> I hope the audience does. Is it more of a challenge you to you. with technical words
1: that you might not normally be accustomed to when they tell you you need to touch the dial and make it
9: do the da 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 da. Yes, yes. You have to make it. Uh, you, those words are m- m- quite a uh, mouthful to learn. But I think anybody who does anything with medical or or legal or they have. ...to overcome that. so <laughs> Sometimes you get it wrong and nobody even notices... ...especially in science fiction, so that's all right.
1: <laughs> Can you take us back in time a little... ...to, the, to around robots of death... And, ...and give us some recollections... ...of those times... And, ...and how you came to be a part of Doctor Who at that time?
9: Yes, I, um, I'd actually known Tom Baker... ...when we were sort of starting out in Rep in Yorkshire... And um, he played a wonderful dog. I don't know if he's ever told anybody about this. (laughs) He was a brilliant dog. He made us cry. (laughs) So he really was a wonderful actor from the start. Um, And when I got the Doctor Who, I had no idea. It was the first time the BBC used... They called it Optical Blue then. It's not called that anymore. And we were absolutely fascinated because we didn't know what we were going to see. So all the robots had to stand still and now it's old hat for everybody but you know and then things went across their eyes and we were thinking what is this going to look like you know it was very strange and of course it really did work we had most wonderful design and it was it was a, it was really lovely to do but one of the things was we just never stopped laughing because Tom Baker is one of the funniest people I've ever met in my life. And you could not stand there for five minutes and he would just set us all laughing again. You'd have to have your makeup done again. You'd have to, you know, streak. But um, it was... My main memory is laughing. I just don't think I've ever enjoyed and laughed so much my entire life. I was quite hysterical sometimes. Um, till the end of... Um, doctor who and they were having strikes i may some people some people may know the story the bbc the the uh, electricians were getting so much work they didn't want any more overtime you know those were the days so they got fed up with their overtime and they said we're just going to stop attend that's it and we're up in the gantry up which is the bit right up above for some reason our our cabin was built up there so you had to climb up several ladders and get there and there was it was about 10 to 10 And we were told we were told you have to finish this by 10 o'clock and the, you know you've just got to do it and so we did take one it was terribly complicated and then they said quick quick and we'd had to leave and then we had to run back across all this gantry like acrobats we were we never had two thoughts about it we've just got to finish it in time and we raced back, did take two of the end. And this was um, Louise Jameson and me in this in this cabin. And the lights went off. And we were still in there. And we found our way out in the dark with somebody sort of shining a torch. I don't think a flashlight, as you call it here. Uh, I, I, I mean, when I look back, <laughs> it was really hazardous. But that's how we ended. We were all climbing down ladders. People, this way, this way. and But we just got it in in time as you know because it's got finished <laughs> but it was it was hair raising because you thought if it doesn't get finished we don't come back you know it's the next episode so uh,
1: a- you worked with Louise in that episode you were on the short list for that part weren't you for, for Leela
9: no, I have never heard this. People keep saying that. Never have yeah. I actually had any evidence of that. Yeah, I was so,
0: going to ask you the same question of where, whether that, that was true or not.
9: I, I think that was... It's,
0: it's like one of these things, oh, one of these it stories, stories legend, that... that as absolutely. They
9: call it? it was always Louise. I, was, I, I, I never even heard the word mentioned about it, and I was so thrilled to do the part I was doing anyway. And Louise... It's younger and lovelier, and she was great. In the, she was perfect for it. So oh, you voiced Zoannin as yes. well. So
1: you had a, you had a little run there where you had on in in, uh, in that story you were you were doing a voice and immediately following it here you are on the bridge of a ship and being all all in charge and and fighting off wonderful robots with incredible costumes. It's a timeless episode. It's probably
9: one of the best Doctor Who episodes of all time. Is Robots of Death. So well written. So well imagined. Yes, it was. It was. Beautifully costumed. It really was a delight to wear all those clothes. I mean, they didn't normally go to such trouble with the costumes. And that was a real standout one. But those were very elaborate. I and mean, yes. you had all kinds of things going on.
1: Do you, do you remember? <laughs> yes, all kinds of... My hat. What do you yes. remember of that, though? Was it
9: uncomfortable? Was it comfortable? No, it, was it challenging um, trying to get all that stuff together? It, the, the funniest thing was actually for the robots, with the makeup. But the makeup was fairly complicated. And they, they spent hours getting it all put on. And I remember, I won't mention who it was. Uh, he went home thinking he was finished. And all of a sudden they called him. And um, he hadn't got any makeup on anymore. He was going home. And everybody kept... Sort of the conversation going while the makeup quickly got him back and actually managed to do all this complicated makeup in about five minutes flat and got him back on. We were,
6: <laughs> and
9: yes, and then we carried on with the scene, but um, we nearly lost him. He, one more minute he'd have been in the underground and. And the subway and gone home because <laughs> he thought he was finished. But it was very complicated makeup and, you know, from doing it for an hour. They managed to do it in five minutes and <laughs> they did it. That was one of the most legendary times in
1: Doctor Who and it was probably one of the most legendary times at the BBC with those yes. those late 70, mid to late 70s and into early 80s where just things were happening one after another. So many amazing productions coming out of there. Wonderful. What was that like?
9: Well, I, I think that's why... I'm, People have to remember, the BBC, that's really, that they spent money on so much that was interesting, not just spending money. And, you know, living here, you really, when you hear people arguing about whether they should put money into the BBC back in England, you think, you don't know how lucky they are to have the BBC. And please never let it go, you know, because it really puts such a mark And here, people are lovely. They say, it's BBC, then it must be very high standard. And that's when I think it really formed its standard and and, and had such imagination. So we mustn't lose it under any conditions a little later on a few years later i agree with 100% and we have the same problem
1: here now with pbs being threatened in the united states it's the same thing the ability to put on something without having to worry about selling cookies or soda or exactly. things like that the ability to
9: just put on something for the sake of the art of the craft that you are doing that's right i think people have always had to fight for those channels pbs is wonderful you know even npr the radio is having to fight i love npr
1: <laughs> so. let's move forward a few years, and then you got to be in Doctor Who again with Sylvester McCoy. How how did that
9: come about? Well, I'm absolutely amazed. I just say that the people, the audience has a lot of imagination because they accept different characters, uh, which is wonderful. So I got a chance to play a completely different character, Dr. Rachel Jensen. Couldn't have been more different. And that um, that was great fun because that was with the Daleks, which of course... I had never experienced before because they weren't in the other one but they were part of my growing up and so we really met the Daleks and in fact one of the people who used to do Daleks regularly got trapped into his machine nobody let him out and we all went to lunch laughter and this is where we realized how, how complicated it was to get in and out. We all came back, and it was all this noise, and he's probably told the story himself. We, everybody was so shocked that he'd been there for an hour, and nobody had known. It was really, they had to be helped in and out at, at, from that particular machine. So if there was nobody there, you was stuck. No wonder My, they want to exterminate everyone. <laughs> yes, that's what put them in those nasty moods.
4: I have to say, it's still going on. That joke is still going on, they still have to help them out, and they still get left inside. It's very yes. Funny. You
1: both did battle with the Daleks, and you've both been the Prime Minister. How interesting is that? We have, we have two Prime Ministers on stage with us. We go. And, and both of you took them down very well. Both of them. Those dialects didn't. Those dialects didn't stand a chance with, between
9: the two of you. Oh well, I I bow between before the prime minister you just depicted in that wonderful film, which name you will not say.
5: <laughs> you are uh, wonderful
9: in
1: it. You were doing a, a retro piece in that because it was, ni- it was supposed to be
9: 1963. So yes. you you went back to have to do the outfits and the hair and things like yes, that. Yes, that was great fun. It was a real jump back into the 60s, wasn't it? It was 60s, early 60s with that. Combed hair and you know stuff that they they beehived it up into um, amazing styles that you amazed that your hair didn't fall out in the spray. <laughs> but it was um, it was a real blast from the past. Yes, that was fun. That was lovely. Can you contrast the two
1: times that you worked on Doctor Who? I mean, clearly, as different years, there were different producers, different people. Yes. But but was the um was the feeling on the set the same? Was it was the same kind of
9: imagination, the same desire to it, just do the craziest things? It, no, no, it was different. It was a more serious time, I think, <laughs> in the world. It sort of got later. And um, it, it wasn't so lighthearted. I think more rode on Doctor Who. People realized, you know, that it was really popular and, and a lot wrote on it and it was lovely working with Sylvester McCoy because he was quite quite different of course as you all know and in fact we've run um, a theatre season here in LA and Sylvester was here and he gave us he allowed us to um, we put on his one man show for a Sunday night here and if those of you who have not seen it called The Real McCoy he was brilliant in that and so he is he is, um, he is such a he's a different character he's like a A clown, isn't he? I I don't know. He's got sort of different energy. Different energy, yes, and he could do magic tricks left, right, and centre. So we were always like this. Show us another trick. Show us another. (laughs) Never got bored. You and your husband own a theatre here in Los Angeles, don't you? No, we we ran a theatre season. We don't own it. We rent. We rented. We rented. We had wonderful. And he joined you on that. On that run. He was visiting to do something else, and we said, please come here. and do something. Yes, here. He was here. Uh, so was we so said, over... please come and do something for us on Sunday because, you know, and he came, and he did this wonderful show. Now, being, doc, being that
1: Doctor Who is a, a British television show... And is the, it? Yes, that's, that's the rumor. <laughs> uh, no. But you were also in another British institution, and that is James Bond. You were with uh, the legendary Sean Connery in Never Say Never Again yeah. as Miss Money Penny. <laughs> stopped many a hearts, I might add, in that part. Oh. And so I couldn't I couldn't conclude an interview without at least asking you a little bit about the memory of, first, the, the late Irvin Kirshner, who we, we just lost a few months ago. That's
9: right, that's right. Well, I mean, in fact, um, Irvin, was the, it was the first time I'd ever heard that expression. Now I live here, I, I've heard it before. When we finished doing it, he came up and he said, that was really professional. Now, in England, when you said that, you... you It was either you were amateur or professional, and amateur meant you didn't do it for a living, and professional meant you were paid and did it for a living. And I thought, how can he? How can he say that was professional? Of course, I'm not an amateur. And I was saying, well, you know, I thought, did he think I was a secretary and just taking the part of Miss Money Penny? And I was terribly offended. I said, well, I went away, and somebody said, what's the matter with you? I said, well, he said I was. Professional, you know, you obviously think Simon Amaton, he said that was really quite professional. And he said, That's a compliment in America. <laughs> <laughs> oh, because <laughs> this was before I moved here. So um, that, that cheered me up. So I always remember that. I was quite disturbed when he said that. But uh, it doesn't mean so much now, but in, in the 60s, the difference between professional and amateur... You know, they were fighting about Wimbledon being professional and amateur. They were fighting about the term professional and amateur. But so I just thought, oh, he, he, he thinks I've just behaved professionally. But um, it was fantastic working with Sean Connery. And there's you, nobody... You worked with him twice, actually. You went with the Great Train Robbery before that. Yes, well. I th- and he, he suggested me because of the first Great Train Robbery, I think. And, um, uh, he, I, well, everybody who knows him, he's... He's just as lovely off-screen as he is on. I mean, he really is his own self. And he was lovely to everybody, from top to bottom. He's not, he's not worried about who does what. And, I, I mean, he, he used to stand up for the underdog a lot, which is amazing, I think.
4: You know, it, don't you? I worked with him on a film called The Russia House. Oh, I just had a yeah, small part on it. But um, I do remember one thing... Uh, uh, In the rehearsal, he wasn't there in rehearsal because he had to, for some reason he was late, not his fault I think, but he had to get his makeup and his hair done. So I worked with his understudy on the rehearsal and then when he came into the room, we were just about to turn over, I, I had to look at him at one point and I went, oh my God. And it really was the eyes. They were so charismatic and you suddenly realized what he had and it was magnetic and it was... Absolutely charismatic, and, and you realised why he was such a big star. It was there. It was across there. It was amazing.
9: That's true. And, and but, but what used to make me laugh was he would do this wonderful scene, absolutely in it, and then he'd walk off and pull his two pay off and march across the hotel floor. He didn't mind a bit. You know, that was that's what made him so sort of. You know lovely he wasn't trying to pretend anything he was him it didn't matter if he had it on off or what he did it that's i don't know if anybody saw F- a finding forrester here was it cool that film he was so wonderful in that film and it never got any publicity it never got it never got mentioned and and i said to somebody why is that and they said well they only the studios only spend so much money on this film or that film or so and so they didn't do that one that year and everybody who saw that says that's one of the, that took place in America, New York wasn't it? Mm-hmm. one of the best things he'd ever done and yet no advertising at all for it it's a weird world isn't it Well, to both of you, I want to thank you both
1: for being up here on our podcast today. It's been a a, a fantastic time. I know Ian and I have worked together before in Chicago. He's a fantastic interview, And you for being so delightful and so generous for coming here today on your own time to just spend a little
0: time with us. Seriously, we want to thank you both. Thank you both. Thank you for being our special guest as well. And we'll be right back with our live show on stage at Gallifrey One's Catch-22 Islands of Mystery. It was such a great time there and interviewing such wonderful guests during our live show. In addition to the guests that we interviewed on our live show, we also interviewed John Leeson, who will be in an upcoming episode of Doctor Who Podshock. And and just recently released was Doctor Who and the Ribos Operation. It's an audio book narrated by John Leeson. It's an audio book, and it's available via Audible. Audible is the leading provider of digital audiobooks. They have over 75,000 titles to choose from, covering every genre, be it thrillers, business, history, science, science fiction, fantasy, so much more. Audible content is compatible with your iPods, iPhones, iPads, MP3 players, well, over 500 devices for listening anytime, anywhere. And for you listeners of Doctor Who Podshock, Audible is offering a free, yes, a free audiobook download with a free 14-day trial to check out their service. To download your free audiobook, simply go to audiblepodcast.com/arttrap. Again, that's audiblepodcast.com/arttrap a r t t r a p for your free audiobook. And as always, we like to make a referral or a recommendation on what that possible selection can be. Or if you're already subscribing to Audible, this could be your selection. Released earlier this month, Doctor Who and the Ribos Operation. It's an audio book based on the book that was written by Ian Martin, based on a story by Robert Holmes. Where the Doctor is called away from a much-deserved holiday by the White Guardian and must reassemble the six segments of The Key to Time. It's a story of the fourth Doctor, along with Romana and K-9. And here's a little bit of that audiobook right now. Again, this is John Leeson narrating and playing the parts of the book, if you will. And uh, this segment here, he's not playing K-9, though K-9 is in the story. But this gives you a little insight of John Leeson's other characters that he can play.
2: Inside the chamber, a rectangular section of wall began to slide very slowly upwards. As the gap between its lower edge and the flagstone floor gradually increased, a stentorian breathing burst out of the darkness beyond the stone shutter. As the slab rose higher and higher, the monstrous panting grew louder and nearer. Outside, the sweating shrieves withdrew the handle after several dozen turns— and the captain led his squad of guards away, having posted a sentry beside the doors. With a screeching shower of sparks, an enormous pincered claw suddenly thrust itself under the raised shutter and began to scratch greedily away at the floor of the chamber. Then an angry giant shape appeared in the rectangular opening— Rearing and hissing in the semi darkness. Garon and Unstoff crouched in the driving snow up on the tower roof, their numb bodies jarred by the tremors of the huge gong suspended somewhere below them. As soon as it was completely silent, Unstoff pushed the hunk of raw, dripping meat over the edge of the trap. They listened as it thudded against the sides of the dark shaft and finally landed on the flagstones 30 metres below. Now the ladder, Garen murmured, peering down into the blackness. Unstov pulled a long rope ladder from his sack and fixed the grapple hook at one end onto the raised rim around the trap. We'd better give it a bit longer, he whispered anxiously. At that moment, a raucous bellow erupted out of the shaft into their faces. Unstaff all but pitched forward into the gaping hole in front of him. Garen seized his arm just in time and held him back. They cowered precariously on the edge of the trap, transfixed by the hoarse snarls and unearthly panting sounds echoing inside the shaft. You... Want me to go down there? Unstoff finally managed to gasp with chattering teeth and bone dry throat. Stop worrying, my boy, Garen rasped in a menacing tone, tightening his grip on Unstoff's arm and tattered fur collar. We'll give it a few minutes. Soon the monstrous sounds began to subside, and the only noise came from Unstoff's rattling teeth and the relentless whine of the wind across the steps. ''Right, down you go, my lad,'' said Garran eagerly. Unstoff swallowed hard. ''But... but it might have smelt us up here,'' he stammered. ''It might not have touched the... the meat. It might just be waiting there... for me.'' Garren eased the rope ladder out of his friend's frozen hands and dropped it into the shaft. ''Trust me,'' he hissed. ''Why... why don't you go down?'' Unstoff suddenly demanded. Garren patted his own vast, fur-clad bulk. ''And if I got stuck in there,'' he retorted, ''then where would we be?'' Unstoff was about to reply that at least he would know where he would be, but he thought better of it and said nothing. All our plans, Garin pleaded. It's all worked out. Don't lose heart now, my boy. He nearly added that at Unstoff's age he had reveled in real danger, but he thought better of it and just gave a wink of encouragement instead. Unstoff did not move. Garen glanced up at the sky. The light was fading rapidly. Listen, he said, that creature must be out for the count. It's as quiet as a grave down there. <laughs> In a manner of speaking, he added with a forced chuckle.
0: Again, that could be your selection. To download your free audiobook, simply go to audiblepodcast.com arttrap. Again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash arttrap for your free audiobook. And if you're driving or you couldn't write down that URL or whatever, you can go to podshock.net or arttrap.com where you can find a link there for this promo offer. And now we return to the stage in Los Angeles, California at Gallifrey One for our live show recorded, well, recorded in front of a live audience. <laughs> Hence the reason why it's a live show.
7: my name's Toby Haydoke, I'm I'm on a massive screen, you're down there, Uh, I'm a nobody, but that's fine, because um, I've been listening to Doctor Who Podshock, and isn't that fun, and I think sometimes what we do is we go, oh, there's a thing and I don't like it, because it's a thing that's about Doctor Who, Uh, I actually think we should just love all the Doctor Who stuff. Um, And the Podshock guys are really good fun, and I'm here with Josh, who's a guy that I met once uh, in America, and now he's in England. What a lot of fun. Look, Podshock is good fun. It's a celebration of Doctor Who. Why don't we just celebrate Doctor Who, and we celebrate the things that we love about it. And um, I I love my American cousins, and uh, I hope you're enjoying what you're doing now and I'm a big face on a screen looking down at you. Fine, I'm I'm just the same as you, but with slightly better vowels. So, uh, enjoy. shop. Sometimes we humanoids try to disguise our, our true feelings. Well, don't just stand there, Adric. Help me.
9: Hi. I'm Nicola Bryant, and I'm sorry I can't be with
7: you, but I'm in a wonderful pub with Josh. But never mind about that. Just say thanks for joining into the podcast, and have a wonderful time again, Fred. Bye. Hey, I'm Andy Dick, and I want to personally thank you for listening to Doctor Who PodShock.
8: Hi, I'm Warwick Hussein. I'm the director of the very first Doctor Who, and uh, I'm happy to be here. And thank you for uh, listening to the Doctor Who Pod Shock. Too much has been said already. Did you like that?
1: If you like that, you're going to love this. Ladies and gentlemen, we wouldn't be here today if it weren't for the next man that's about to come out on stage. He's been on our show before, and Gino was fortunate enough to write it down for me. Episode 218 from last summer. Mm It's very fair to say that this man is a legend and he's fantastic. And he, to my knowledge, he's never done a Doctor Who convention before. He's never been up here to speak on a stage. And I hope you will all join me, please, in welcoming a living legend to the stage the director of The Unearthly Child, Mr. Wars Hussein. The very first Doctor Who director.
0: Mr. Waris Hussein, Thank you so much for being here, please Give it up to Waris It all started with this man
5: Wow <laughs>
1: Boy, I bet your Twitter's going right now Thank you, first off, yes. so much for being here. And thank you for directing Doctor Who. Thank you for, for helping deliver the baby to us.
8: I'm, 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 I don't know what to say, uh, except that I'm overwhelmed. And uh, here you all are. And uh, uh, I, I would like to say that when we first started this show... People say to me, how old were you? I said, I was about 12 years old. Uh, But the reality is that uh, I never realized, neither did my wonderful producer, Verity Lambert, who's no longer with us, unfortunately. We never realized what we had. We thought we had about six weeks. So here we are.
1: Am I allowed to say that it's been over 47 years since the debut of An Unearthly Child? You were only three at the time, which is extraordinary, to have uh, been a, such a young director, which is unusual in the BBC. Let's go back in time a little. Let's go all the way back to the to the very beginning. Uh, you you're being assigned to the show this was Verity's choice I, I take it to, to hire someone like yourself um,
8: you knew Verity no actually here's the history of my experience I was uh, the youngest director at the BBC um, i had just done a trainee course I was anxious to prove my skills and uh, they were putting me on a, I did a daytime soap which used to go out twice a week and uh, one of the episodes used to go out live and uh, I thought this is my fate Um, then what happened was that Sidney Newman who was then head of drama wanted to do something new he wanted to do a series that would be for kids but it wouldn't it would, they wouldn't pat, patronize the kids. They, he wanted something that would educate them. So the format would be a story that would take people into the future and then also into the past, so that you could have a future situation inside to fig sci fi, and then you could also educate them with the stories that took place in the in history, and that format still exists as you probably see. But Sydney then decided how he was going to put this thing together and he came up with the idea of Doctor Who. And at that time, they, had, uh, they were looking for a director, and who was the most vulnerable, anxious, ambitious one around? <laughs> hiding in the wings. Um, they chose me because there was no one else to object. Uh, the reality was how do you do a show about an old man at that time Doctor Who was William Hartnell if you all remember uh, who lives in a telephone box which becomes a spaceship uh, it seemed like a ridiculous idea to the heads of, you know, at the BBC it was very bureaucratic at the time a lot of people objected to it and they almost killed the idea and if it hadn't been for Sidney Newman, who I want to mention yet again, because he's never remembered, and he should be on credits by now, mm-hmm. he was the yeah. originator. Uh, he, he chose a young PA who he used to work with at uh, commercial television called Verity Lambert. And, um, and so the two youngest people that the BBC could come up with We were shown into a little room with a table and two chairs and four scripts and they were told we are going to have to move this along. I looked at the first four scripts and they were about guys who walked around in furs looking for fire and there was no dialogue. And I said what are we going to do with this Verity and she said we're going to have to make it work. And uh, I thought, oh, my God. I thought I was going to go. You know, I I was looking forward to doing Shakespeare. And uh, so what happens is that uh, we did try to make it work. And I think we more or less set the tone. It was quite difficult. Um, uh, We had no money. That's something else I must tell you about. Uh, Because the BBC did not believe in the show, we were shoved off into the older studio Uh, down the road we were given the oldest equipment for the cameras in fact the cameras were so heavy that the camera boys got back trouble just trundling from one situation to another and that was because no one believed in it and we had to make it work so it gives me even more pleasure to be able to tell you this story now Um. you are a fan of
1: the current show I know that for a fact because you, you know the episodes in vivid detail, don't you? You are a fan watching Matt Smith and company and go about through time and space. And you mentioned that one of your favorite episodes this season was Vincent and the Doctor oh, with yeah. Vincent Van Gogh.
8: Well, that, of course, was so well written by Richard Curtis who as you know is a wonderful writer anyway but what I found wonderful about that particular episode was not only did he take you into the past and educate people about the painter himself and what it means to be an artist but it also incorporated Doctor Who's main story into this thing I thought it was a stroke of genius and it sort of Uplifted the whole thing, and I loved it. Uh, it was very moving as well
1: it was a touch of what the show has been meant to be wasn 't it? I mean it really followed the, the original setup of teaching a little and still making it
8: entertaining, doing both absolutely both. that 's what, what the intention was. Um, my sadness is that when we actually saw the show begin to make a mark. Um, I had another uh, block to do, and it's lost. It was based on Marco Polo. And um, the reason I'm sad about that is because it had more money poured into it. And if you are aware of any stills that you might have seen... It actually had enormous qualities to it that, unfortunately, you cannot see because the seven episodes—the seven episodes that I did—have got lost. If anyone finds them, it's rather like finding El Dorado. Uh, it's, I don't know where, somewhere there may be film cans. But um, that was my big sadness. Again, it educated an audience about going back into the past, teaching. Uh, kids about a man called Marco Polo who did this amazing journey across to Cathay, which was that time and is now China. But
1: you said that you had a little more money. Was that because of the, su- the success of the Daleks in between there? That suddenly yes. everyone was paying attention, and then Verdi asks you, Okay, can you take on Marco Polo? Is that.
8: Yeah, I mean, what happened was the Daleks, of course. Made a huge impact. Uh, And the show took off. I mean, you know, we couldn't have started under worse auspices because you may or may not know this. The opening, the first night when it was supposed to be broadcast, was the very night in which President Kennedy was assassinated. So you can imagine the horror and the gloom, and my God, what are we going to do? And uh, so the BBC then rev- did actually bring it out again, but we just, it was, we thought, oh, this is terrible, it's like a terrible sign, but we overcame it. It seemed to have worked out in the long yeah, run, didn't absolutely. it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, not, and, and not, again, you know, it's, we're making light of it because it, 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 it's, it's been so long now, but, but at that time it, it must have been. The world's worst feeling—that uh-huh. you've worked so hard and scraped it together and pulled it together—and you've done two pilots because you shot a first version of an earthly yes. child. They looked at it and and what happened? You
8: well, get the first one, you present it. And the what first pilot—I pa- I don't know how many of you've seen the pilot. I wish no one had seen it. And you know, cause quite frankly, it's a work in progress. And we were terribly upset by it. Uh, in fact, Sydney took Verity and me out to dinner, and he said. Um, you know, I should, by rights, be firing both of you. I <laughs> uh, said, what can we do? And I said, well, Sydney, you know, in those days, it, it, it wasn't as simple as it is today. We were using continue. You know, we were shooting on tape with four cameras, and you cannot stop the tapes. And those, you were rationed to four breaks per episode. And one of the breaks involved how do you get somebody into a phone box and then into another big set... And we made it. We fudged it. It didn't work. And uh, uh, so I said to him, "You know, you've set me a task that I have not got any facilities with, for." And uh, anyway, we, we we did discuss it at length. But there was a moment where we both were quaking in our shoes, wondering what would happen to our our futures. But um, he was very. He said, "Look, you you both are talented." I'm going to give you a second chance. So that's what happened, and then we did this episode again. And, and if you can compare the two, you'll see the differences. Uh, but you know, there's no joke trying to get anybody into, even today, into that, and then have them go into this huge. Uh, I must tell you a story. I now look at the, um, the set for the TARDIS, which is incredibly elaborate. Uh, in those days, because we had no money, the designer came to me and said, all I can give you is three flats with hexagonals and, and it's going to be echoed on a hexagonal uh, base and that's going to be, I said what's the hexagonal? He said, I don't know I'm just coming up with something because I don't know how it else to work. I mean, the whole thing was like scrambled together and now that, that same hexagonal panel is one of the most elaborate things you've ever seen on television and I keep thinking of the days when we were sitting there trying to make this whole thing happen and, you know, few little levers and buttons and William Hartnell who was quite a character by the way. That's another thing we should talk about which is uh, the, the, the way the Doctor Who has developed to Matt Smith uh, I mean you now have got this very young guy well we had David Tennant of course but uh, originally he was an old man Uh, who's supposed to be so many years old, and he had a granddaughter. Now, of course, he's got glamorous companions. And I I, I often wonder what happened to his granddaughter. Somebody should mention it. Uh, uh, (laughs) uh, Uh So
1: you you did the first pilot. Now you're going to do a second one, which is almost like the first one became a dress rehearsal because it really gave you a chance to refine that pilot and really get it to be near theatrical yeah. I think it's fair to say that when you watch it it has a theatrical feel to it it doesn't, you know, with the exception of maybe some technological limits it doesn't feel like you're watching a, a stage television show there's something more to it, there's something bigger than that. How much of that was that learning experience?
8: Well I think it obviously helped and it's always great to be able to learn from one's mistakes so I would take credit for that uh, but I would say that, the, you know <laughs> in the end, it, it, it depended on how you could tell a story and keep it moving along. I mean, if you look at that whole episode, uh, uh, all the four, uh, there's another funny story, because again, casting in it was even more hysterical, because the furs we put on everybody, uh, the actresses were okay. Well, none of them were okay, because of fleas in the fur. And <laughs> And there were a lot of scratching went on, and I had to audition actors by saying, are you hairy? Because we couldn't afford, it was all very embarrassing, and would you just oh, take your shirt off? I... Anyway, uh, uh, so, uh, so we managed, we had these two very good actors, Derek Newark, and you know, I mean, these are, these are seasoned people that we would have a giggle at every moment, what with the fire and evil going on and people being sacrificed. But you know, I mean, let's face it. Uh, The point about it is that it was meant to educate. And here we were telling kids in those days how fire was found. And after the film was made, after we did ours, there was a huge movie called Quest for Fire. uh, So I kept thinking, maybe they sort of cheated on, on our script but no, it wasn't the case really but they had much more money um, I'll tell you another funny story because what about the title Doctor Who uh, I met a guy at a, at a gathering he actually he came we, we were at a, a social function and I saw this person sitting in a corner and I said, uh, he said I said what do you do he said I'm an actor and I'm, I'm not sure what's going to happen because I've just done something and uh, it's a film called Doctor No and I said, oh, I hope it doesn't conflict with mine, because mine's called Doctor Who, and this person was Sean Connery, so. <laughs> so.
1: Well, there's a, a story that I tell, Though, when I looked in the TV guide, as a, as a young child, I saw... Um, doctor who science fiction on a uhf station and i thought immediately of the sean connery movie and i tuned in and here i am three decades later still watching this quirky little show that that you made so many years ago and and so many of other people have brought this far there's an amazing legacy with it and it means so much to so so many people what um what is your most? What is your proudest moment about all that? About being involved on it, yeah. or how? Uh, what does it mean to you in your heart to know that so many people? Uh, that it means so much to so many people.
8: Well, you know, it, it, I, I, I don't know how to answer that in, in a direct way because the reality is that. I'm still astonished. I'm sitting here, I'm watching all of you watching me, and I never for a minute thought this would ever happen. I mean, if you told me this. So you it's like almost like a dream. Uh, it's almost like an episode of Doctor Who. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, you sort of step into the TARDIS and come into another time. I mean, I can v- honestly remember vividly my first meeting with Verity in that office, my first step into that studio and wondering what the heck I was going to be doing with this and trying to make sense with it and and, and getting terribly worried and going home and... Trying to think about how to make it work and, and not sort of end up so that we're all embarrassed by it. And that's what I'm saying. So for me, an achievement is not so much a single moment, it is the overall moment of achievement, because this is an achievement. What else can I say?
1: Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Waris Hussein, I'm afraid this draws to a conclusion. Let's give up to ours. Dr. Who Podshock, thank you so much you. for giving us Dr. Who. Thank
4: you so much. Thank you.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Who Podchuck, live from Los Angeles, has concluded. I hope you'll join us out in the lobby where Wallace and Pamela and a few other friends will be signing for those of you who would like to join us out in the lobby and, uh, and, and say hello in person and say thank you in person. How about that? We want to thank Sean Lyon and everybody from, from Gallifrey Conventions for, for welcoming us. So many people behind the scenes, Billy, Josh, Tris, Chris, all the sound people, all the technical people. And a
0: special thank you for Ken for helping managing and putting this show together. So Thank you, you very much. I,
1: I, we really, Seriously, I, I work one year. To do this every year, and I, and I really appreciate everybody being here and, and, uh, and seeing our, our hard work uh, fulfilled. So thank yes. you very much for Also, we'll how you guys do you like outside. our fezzes? You can check out
0: Fezzerabber.com. And uh, also, thank you. We can uh, catch our show on iTunes if you're not already listening. And also, next week we are on Second Life. We're having a meetup on Second Life. So the party continues next week on Second Life. Dr. Who meet meetup. And thank you, Pam, for the scarf. Pam, if you're out there, I can't see you, but if you're out there, thank you. Pam gave this to me. She knitted this to me last year at our meet and greet and presented it to me. I wanted to wear it last year, left it in the room.
7: What's that? It's a sonic screwdriver. Never fails.
4: Drop the sonic device. Isn't my day, is
6: it? Even the Sonic screwdriver won't get me out of this one.
0: Are you seeking Doctor Who news? The Sonic News Driver. Selected Doctor Who related news stories delivered sonically. All in a bite sized podcast. No bigger than a jelly baby.
7: Function of a sonic blaster, a sonic cannon, I mean, and a triple folded sonic disruptor. Doc, what you got? I've got a sonic, uh,
2: Oh, never mind. What? It's sonic. Okay, let's leave it at that. Disruptor, cannon, what? It's sonic. Totally sonic. I am sonic, sonic. What? That's sonic. What? Screwdriver.
0: The Sonic News Driver. Find it on iTunes or go to sonicnewsdriver.com.
2: Who has a sonic screwdriver? I do!
0: The Sonic News Driver. Get yours today, sonically. Neat, isn't it? Hmm? There you have it, our live show recorded on stage at Gallifrey One this year at Gallifrey One's Catch-22 Islands of Mystery. It should be noted that the post-Gallifrey One party I mentioned at the end of the live show took place the following Sunday after Gallifrey One. We had a great turnout, as usual. If you heard about it on our live show and you were attending for the first time, know that the poolside tiki theme for the meetup was not the usual fare for the Doctor Who exhibition in Katrina on Second Life there's usually a different theme for each of our meetups so if you couldn't make it to Gallifrey One this year join us at our seasonal meetups you don't need any transportation there's no traveling involved all that's needed is a broadband internet access and a computer of course and you can join us our next meetup is tentatively set for the 21st of May Thanks to everyone who came to our live show at Gallifrey One this year. Special thanks to all those that helped make it happen. As Ken mentioned at the end, Joshua Lou Friedman, Billy Davis, Gina Snape, Rachel McCauley, as well as Chris, Tris, and many others that have helped. Special thanks to Ken Deep himself, who put so much of himself into this live show. Special thanks to all Paw supporting subscribers that helped make this possible. Of course, thank you to Sean Lyon and all the volunteer staff at Gallifrey One. Next up is an extra edition of Doctor Who Pachak coming soon. We still have feedback to get to, and we will soon. Meanwhile, please continue to send your feedback to the Pachak public call box at 206-600-6517. Once again, that's 206-600-6517 to leave feedback. As always, you can keep up on Doctor Who and Doctor Who Pachak by visiting our website at pachak.net. You can also find out about other podcasts being produced by Art Trap Productions at ArtTrap.com. And congratulations to James Norton, who the day before our live show tied the knot. On behalf of Ken, James, and myself, cheers, everyone! You have been listening to Doctor Who Podchop, presented by the fan-run GallupranEmbassy.org. Doctor Who is owned and trademarked by the BBC. Doctor Who Pachock is not affiliated with the BBC in any way. Doctor Who Pachock theme music by Jeff Smith at TheJeffSmith.com This has been a production of Art Trap Productions and is presented to you by the Gallifreyan Embassy and has been made possible in part by supporting subscribers and donations from listeners like you. This episode also supported by the Podchock podcast companion app for iOS devices available in the iTunes App Store.
2: Oh, goodbye, my dear chap. I must say, I've had the time of my life.